Hi everyone, thank you so much for tuning in once again to the ICS Staff Podcast. Hope you're doing well out there, hope you all had a really good ski break or, or week off work, that you're able to find some relaxation time and recuperate and maybe listen to previous episodes of the ICS Staff Podcast, who knows. Um, but as I said, welcome, great to have you and for this episode I have a conversation with our primary principal, Nat Atherton. And we really dive into a book that he's actually shared across the leadership team in primary, which is The End of Average by Todd Rose. And so we look at the different concepts within it and the principles uh, behind really the role that Todd Rose has right now and what he promotes in his book, which really has a profound effect on maybe how we, we view overall educational systems not just at our school, but across everywhere. And also think about the impact that might have on how we operate in our day-to-day teaching. So this really is an episode for everybody across primary and secondary. And I hope you enjoy. So thanks once again. And here's my conversation with Nat. Okay, welcome once again to the ICS podcast and with me for this episode I have the pleasure of having Nat Atherton with me. Welcome Nat. Hello Philip, thanks for having me. It's great to have you and um, so just before we, we dive into this episode we're, we've got a, got a few first questions I just want to ask you. How, how are things going? You're, it's your first year at ICS and yeah, how, how are things going so far? Um, maybe best to ask the staff. No, uh, <laughs> but but in all honesty, no. I think it's been great. You know, I, I said right at the start when I arrived at the school that I felt really welcomed by everyone on campus, and I think that's held true throughout the year. You know, it is a a different year to arrive in Switzerland with COVID and everything uh, at play um, in the community. But uh, I think uh, collectively we're navigating it quite well. And uh, and it is you do really feel that sense of community that's in the school's name. So that's been great. And Switzerland itself, I'm sure everyone knows, is a beautiful place to be. And myself and my family are really uh, enjoying it. Yeah, and and that was going to be my next. How how are you finding life also in Switzerland? Because I mean, obviously, COVID would have had a bit of an effect when you first arrived, and continually as well. Yeah, I think when we first arrived, you know, it was a bit of a shock because we had been in Canada most recently. And actually, the restrictions were quite light in Switzerland at the time, um, mask wearing, et cetera. So that was a bit of just an initial shock. Um, but that said, it, it's been really great. It's kind of interesting, right? You don't, you only know what you know. And so I think coming to Switzerland, sometimes I have to remind myself that this isn't the normal way, or even at ICS isn't the normal way, that it is kind of like a 70% capacity of all the cool extra fun things that we normally mm-hmm. would be doing, whether it's things in school or whether it's things uh, in the community festivals and things like that. So I think it's been um, it's been really good, but I'm looking forward to my real first year in Switzerland and ICS next year. Fingers crossed. Yeah, well you could explore all those different tourist sites for yourself as well, hopefully, and and yeah, just enjoy Switzerland for what it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, th- well, let, let's, let's go to the beginning a little bit okay. in terms of your journey before getting to switzerland okay so where were you before here or what your international journeys looked like um if you can you can expand on that sure yeah um uh so before switzerland i've been kind of in international education since like 2004 um my wife and i met when i was in taiwan teaching um english 
uh, went home and did uh, a master's actually in the U.S. I'm originally from Canada, um, and uh, and then went back overseas, lived in Thailand for a couple years, and then uh, most recently, before I came here, I was at uh, in Beijing at a school called Western Academy of Beijing, mm-hmm. where I held a variety of. I was a homeroom teacher. I was the PYP coordinator. I was the deputy principal, uh, and then came here. So yeah, I've had lots of different experiences. You've been in Asia for quite a while then actually. In in Asia for a while. Yeah, absolutely. And now landing in Europe. Yeah. So that's been a a, a good change, I think. Well, an exciting change, you know, new region to explore. Not that we're getting to do a lot of that these days, but (laughs) but, you know, excited about it. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. No, that's that's great. Thank you for sharing that. And and, uh, what is almost maybe a slight tradition with any new guest on the podcast that we do have a bit of a quick quiz game round. Okay. And okay. we're just going to do a quick one. Okay. We've got a lot to dive into for this episode. Okay. And we're, we're going back to a game of this or that. Okay. And I thought this also has a ring to it, this or that with that as Sounds well. Sounds good. Is there a theme song? Or? I, 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 maybe I should do a jingle. Maybe yeah, Maybe I should get a jingle for this. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's, some, that's a side project we could work on together. Okay, okay. Um, but yeah, this or that. Very easy. I give you two options. You've got to basically try and get your answer out as quickly as possible. No hesitation. Familiar with the game. What is your choice? I will give you the option of saying both oh. um, or neither. Oh, really? Wow, this is a very flexible game. Oh, uh, th- th- yeah. People do mention how flexible I am. Um, <laughs> so um, here we go. So we're going to go quick. I think we've got about 10 here. Here we go. So first up, uh, tea or coffee? Coffee. Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Truth or dare? Ooh, uh, dare. Ooh, okay. Rock concert or nightclub? Gonna be a rock concert at a nightclub? I don't want to go to a rock <laughs> concert in a stadium. That's sad. Well, yeah, that's I'd rather true. be in a nightclub. Like I a like, din- that, like a, a, d- a dingy rock concert or yeah, like a drop your bass nightclub. Start the night you're one gonna, place, end the night somewhere okay, else. You know, you've got go, a big night ahead. You're going all night. You're going all night. <laughs> okay, we're learning a lot here. So, uh, dog or cat? Dog. Europe or Asia? Ooh, neither. No, uh, Ooh. both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, beer or spirits? Both. Going hardcore. Skiing or snowboarding? Both. Nice. Swimming or paddleboarding on the Zurich Lake? Swimming. Nice. Uh, burger diner or Mexican restaurant? Mexican restaurant. Sunshine run or lazy afternoon with a book? Sunshine run. Ooh, good. Okay, that's it. Nice. Thanks for that. Okay. And I, I kind of finished with the, with the book element because that's a nice segue into our topic. Although for, I didn't choose the book. Although you <laughs> did, you did I have no interest in the book. <laughs> yeah, it's the don't. only book I've ever read, it's, actually. It's just the one book. So yeah. it was slim pickings for this podcast, actually. So, But it also made it easy to what we we're going to talk about. Uh, so with that in mind, this is kind of a book review. And, and I'm really looking forward to this, actually, because this we're going to have a conversation about a book called The End of Average by Todd Rose, who is actually now, and we'll get into maybe a bit of what he's about during the conversation, but he's now the director of the Mind, Brain, and Education program at Harvard University. And really probably the starting point for this book, I mean, you can probably get a lot from the title and the style of the book, but Nat, what, for you, what would be the main concepts of this book and yeah, why you were well, drawn I mean to the, it. The title gives some of it away, right? Is this idea of um, average. And w- what the book is exploring is um, how averages have been applied to um, social sciences and to humans um, and where the genesis of that is and, and why that might be and what are some of the problems that exist in that. And, and really, when we think about it in so many ways, averages are what's applied all the time in most contexts, um, 
when we're talking about people, we talk about, you know, the average median, median, um, you know, income. We talk about an average uh, academic score at a school. We talk about average uh, salaries that people have. What's the average um, basis of a community? And so we've really used this concept of average in so many ways when we're talking about social sciences. And so this book's really looking at um, the genesis and really the, some, of the, some of the issues around this. Um, Todd Rose uh, was rig originally studying a, a new field or a new area called um, the science of the individual and really looking at um, what is, um, rather than looking at humanity as this broad average, why don't we look at the more um, individual traits that people have and see how those may be true across a variety of people. Yeah, and uh, I've, I found it fascinating that actually a bit of background on Todd Rose himself, that he was actually a high school dropout, to, to yeah, use that terminology. Yeah. And it, it's really, and again, we'll probably get into some stories later in the conversation, but I, I found that really struck me quite intently where he, he wrote this book and is now in a quite a big position at Harvard University after being a high school dropout. And that's kind of where the process begins for him, that he had this belief that education had such a value to bring out the potential in individuals and that we can't just perhaps go through this industrialized system that we're all used to that we're we're still in per se and how can he develop a, a different program to get the most out of the individual yeah absolutely and and we'll talk a he has some different principles that apply to um the way that that uh, we need to rethink the way that we think about about humans but i think what's interesting about the book is it is really written in a very approachable way it's kind of written in in um a very interesting uh kind of set of stories and i think one of the stories that kind of initially highlights or begins the book, um, there's a few, where he's kind of um, helping us understand where averages can kind of be uh, misapplied, is there's a story about uh, in the 1940s in the US Air Force, um, this was the beginning of kind of jet propulsion aircrafts, um, and they were noticing that there was a lot of aviation crashes uh, taking place. Um, and as many as 17 in a single day during a non-combat period, just during training. Wow. Uh, and one of the things that they realized was um, they, they were checking the machines and making sure the mechanics were correct and they would find that the, the mechanics were fine. You know, there was no, no uh, machine error. And then the pilots would insist that it wasn't a pilot error, that there wasn't any error on their side, that they weren't, you know, um, making a, you know, raising, toggling too fast or making any particular movements that should cause any issues. And they couldn't resolve what it was. So they started to look at it and they said, okay, you know, we haven't actually adjusted the size of the cockpits since we first built them when, when aircraft started to be uh, coming to play around the mm -hmm. 1920s. And so they had designed a specific co cockpit in about 1926 based on the measurements of a, of a person in 1926. So it's like an average person. Yeah, so exactly. So their, their cockpits were, ba right. were basically built around an average size Pilots. What they thought was an average pilot at the time, they took, I don't know, 25 and pilots, they measured them, they said, yeah, they mostly fit in here. And that comes into how the reach, like, of certain buttons or, or, or well, you know, well, this contr is it. controls within the cockpit. So the, so the, so the U.S. Armed Force thought, well, uh, or, or Air Force, rather, thought, um, look, what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll we have 4,000 pilots, we'll measure them all, and we'll find out what the average is, and then we can build a new cockpit that will best fit... Um, you know, the average pilot. And then as we hire moving forward, we'll hire for the average. So they measured 
as you said, their reach, their arm length, their leg length, uh, the size of their hands, um, all these different, you know, torso, all these different measurements. And then they went and they, they found the average of all of those so that they could build this average size cockpit. But when they finished this, this exercise, they then said, these are all the dimensions of an average pilot. But when you looked at the 4,000 pilots, there wasn't a single one of them that actually was average on every single one of those metrics. So in fact, no mm -hmm. one was the average pilot. This concept that there was an average pilot, one person's hands were really big, but their arm length was quite short. You know, someone else was, had huge feet and, and short arms. So this uh, concept of average in itself was wrong. And, and it, it didn't fit anyone then. So out of those, those 4,000 pilots, they designed this cockpit, it didn't fit one of them. Correct. And so in the end, what they, this was, ac it's actually interesting because it was, what they ended up doing is developing a cockpit that was adjustable, which is actually the beginning of today, how in, a, in an automobile, we would have adjustable car seats to, mm -hmm. to change the size for an adjustable steering, um, steering wheel height. But that was originally developed because of this particular study said, oh, rather than trying to find the average person, we need to make the cockpit more malleable to meet the needs of the specific uh, pilot. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating how you know from that era how these um, elements develop, and of course, what Todd Rose has done is now applied that into his probably mission. You could say is to to try and reformulate and and transform education. Absolutely. Forwards. Yeah, yeah. So he gets in it. I mean, I think what's interesting too, yeah, absolutely, is it's looking at the impact of this about how can our system better meet the needs of the individual student. And I think what's interesting is um, there's an assumption that we make as um, as people. It's so ingrained in us our understanding of big data and of applying um, averages to um, humans that we just take it for granted. But actually, if you look historically, the genesis for this is quite quite clearly linked back to a Belgian astronomer that lived uh, in the the mid 1800s. Um, and at the time in the 1800s, you know we were looking to the celestials for for new information and for what was the origin of the universe and lots of people were studying stars and and the most prominent um, scientists and um, and governments were building big observatories and in Belgium at the time this this uh, astronomer um, he he was he it was actually ruled by the Dutch at the time and he had, had forged a deal for them to build a big observatory for him um, which he was going to uh, be able to do his research and find out things. But uh, what happened was that there was a revolution in Belgium and, uh, and it, the civil war broke out and they, they, they pushed the Dutch out. And he, he quickly realized that he wasn't going to be able to follow his research of being an astronomer. And so he quickly realized, you know, I need to find something that I can capitalize and become part of, of, of this new governing group. And one of the things they needed was information around uh, how to develop a really good army. And, uh, and so they hired him, you know, as a scientist, he said, well, maybe I can apply this, my scientific principles and ideas to humans. And uh, at the time in astronomy, um, one of the big things that people were doing was they were measuring um, the time it would take a celestial body to move through a given plane. And the way that they would do that mm -hmm. was is they would uh, mark on a telescope um, two parallel lines, and they would watch how long it would take Venus to move through those two lines. And that would tell them how quickly the Earth was rotating or how quickly it was moving. Mm -hmm. um, and so what would happen was is these different celestial, um, this was very common practice, but of course the reading would be slightly different if you were in Belgium or if you were in Zurich 
or if you're in Johannesburg, or if you're in different areas. Well, Johannesburg would be too far to actually look at, but in different locations in Europe. So to create an agreement about how long it took to really move a, through a celestial body, what they would do is they would add up all these different readings across Europe, and then they would take the average. And the average would tell mm. us, well, that's about actually how long it takes Venus to move through this uh, plane, or how quickly it's moving across. So, so he, he decides he's going to go and work for this new uh, government, and they just say, we need to find out what the ideal soldier is going to be. We need to, to find out what the perfect mm -hmm. soldier is for our new uh, country, for Belgium. And so he starts to figure out that the concept is that, that average, being the middle, is closest to perfection. So when we first start looking at averages applied to humans, the idea is to be the more perfect you are to average means you know you don't have big gangly arms or you're not, you know you're you're perfectly average. I suppose it's that, suppose it's that concept of being just right. That's right. You could you, yeah you could interchange those ter those terms actually. You could say yeah as as it kind of maybe mentions in the book you know closer to the average in the middle is perfect but. You could, yeah, look at that. It's like just right, you know, just the right height, just the right length arms, just the right fat to muscle ratio, et right. cetera, et cetera. Right, and I think at the time, right, in, in many European countries, obviously they were um, Christian background, and it was the sense that humans were made in the likeness of God. And so this idea that, you know, to be, if you were the closest to the original likeness of yeah. perfection in the middle, you know, anything else is a deviation. And it's interesting, at some point over time, we started to recognize that deviation actually could be a benefit, right? Like being tall, you know, could have its benefits. Being faster than everyone else could have its benefits. But for a long time, there was this concept of average is efficient and average is moving. And that's where we get into that idea of Taylorism, which is, you know, what that kind of industrial model is modeled after of. is like, if every, if every nut is the same size, we can have a machine screw in all the nuts really fast. And this idea of average kind of comes into place in there. So it's really interesting to look at where it, it kind of made the leap of this concept of applying averages to objects in space, to being able to start to apply it to humans, and not because of some grand study that said this was the right thing to do, yeah. just because it was convenient and became kind of normalized over time. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it, yeah, it's really interesting. And, and it's a case of then fast forwarding X number of years in terms of, you know, probably your takeaways from it. What, what were maybe some key principles then if we were to bring this into, you know, that, that modern element of education and mm. where we look forwards? Well, I know Todd Rose came up with, he, I think it was three different principles to guide us forward. Yeah, absolutely. So he says that there are three principles and the three principles are the jaggedness principle, the context principle and the pathway principle. And all of them completely have a real application for education, but in, in other examples as well. Um, the jaggedness principle talks about that um, there's an understanding that people make about uh, when they make comments about other people that someone is good at math or someone is name the thing. Um, but what he's saying is that people are multifaceted. They're not quite as simple as saying they're good. Um, you know, so someone might be good at math. Let's take an education example. Uh, we might say, these are the good mathematicians in my class. But the truth is that they might be good in certain areas of mathematics rather than other areas. So they might have real strengths in arithmetic, but not be very good at uh, geometry. They might have a, a weaker understanding of shape and space. And so we actually can plot someone's profile as being jagged, right? If we imagine the continuum, yeah, they're really high over here on arithmetic or on multiplication, division, or whatever 
uh, you want to use. And then they're weak here in shape and space. Then they have real strengths here in data handling. But then again, they need some help when it's coming to thinking mathematically. And then we start individualizing that element of education. Absolutely. And I think what happens right now, well, um, not necessarily at, at all schools, and I think ICS actually in, in some cases does a really good job at this, about looking at and using differentiated data to, to identify what an individual student needs. But historically speaking, we make this assumption about how a student is performing. Sometimes even our report cards don't tell the whole story too, right? We're averaging out their abilities to give a final grade. Could we give a more precise understanding of where a student is in that continuum that not only helps inform the parent, but also helps inform the child when we're talking about assessment capable students. You know, if we just round out and say you're overall a five or a six, it's not giving all of the details of actually where do you need to grow and where are you already proficient? Yeah, and I think even from from an IB perspective, you know, it, if we just take one example of curriculum, you know, it a very open-ended style in a way, from the IB all the way down to primary and through all levels, but it's a case of, even though it's quite open-ended, there's still that norms, average-based mm. kind of element of criteria. So yeah. according to the IB, this is what this grade looks like. This is kind of where this student is. And... Yeah, and I suppose then then we're coming back to averages and, and also when the IB actually comes around for the older students and graduating, it's 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 also that that norms average based mm. worldview even. Yeah, yeah. That and that's that's uh, it is it's really hard. I mean it it's hard to break down some of these, but I think if you dig there is evidence that suggests I think the other one that he talks about is this idea of the pathways principle. And the pathways principle is really talking about how actually it's just that there's all these understandings of developmental benchmarks and they hold some weight but we overemphasize sometimes their importance and we sometimes freak out about people being outside of a normal band and we actually see lots and lots of evidence of people that take unconventional pathways to be highly successful in fact todd rose wrote another book in 2018 i think called dark horse and that's actually studying all these examples of people who are you know that are now, you know, there is a woman who has become a backyard astronomer. She's had several planets named by her that she's found on her own. And it's all this individual passion that arrives at the right time. I mean, I think I can speak from my own experience um, through my academic journey at different points in time, having a real impetus and finding real motivation to learn. And at other times being like, yeah, actually, I'm not that motivated right now and not being achieving at a really high level. And I can recognize that in, in my own personal experience yeah yeah and that th and that's something maybe we'll come on to shortly is is yeah that knock-on that knock-on effect in terms of um lifelong learning you know that holistic view of education but also for me when i was looking at, at todd rose's work you know it was that element of we have these averages these expectations and benchmarks up until 18 and then university as well and it, there's almost this cultural expectation that our students have to be set have to be set yeah. in place yeah. by 18 or set in place by 21 making choice of what they're going to do forever mm. Mm. and how can we develop a culture of that it, it's never done we're yeah. always going to be you know yeah. and we and we do talk about that you know being an ib school but i think it's really promoting a new culture of that of how we develop that further of achieving one's potential and what what was quite profound to me when i was looking up todd rose was Okay, so with him as a high school dropout and then was kind of more successful and got into academia later in life, 
there's so many examples of that and it was really profound to me how you know that we are setting students up i'm not saying ics but in terms of educational principles mm. to think that they have to fall into these expectations yeah, yeah. you know it's, it's interesting right this idea i think actually in the pyp using the phases if they're used properly if we can uh, go back to the idea of jagged and, and uh, of pathways if you can really teach to where a child is in that given phase that given time not worry about what's grade two what's grade four but worry about where that child is at that's super powerful and i think in an ideal world we'd have that kind of phase model going through the school and i think you know the school that i came from was deeply involved in exploring personalized learning and uh, we spent a lot of time discussing it and one of the things we were discussing was you know imagine if a child decides in seventh grade that they think they're really interested in art and so they invest more time in their art, their visual arts classes, and they decide they're not taking MYP design as a result. Right now, the problem with our school processes is that the pathway says grade seven MYP design is only taught in grade seven. But if you just think of it as a class in time, the child could mm. go ahead and take, let's say in, in, in one year, they ended up taking, they're really passionate about art and they were a grade seven student. They took grade eight, grade seven, grade eight, and grade nine visual art. Like the 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 competencies and requirements to meet to meet the needs of the of the MYP course. But then at the end of grade nine, they decided, you know what, actually, it's kind of, I actually need some more stuff in design. If design is an attached grade seven content competencies, learning outcomes aren't actually attached to a time, but rather just to a basket or a box of learning, then that can be accessed at any point. That child could say, actually, now I'm really passionate about that. I wouldn't mind going back. And in that class, there might be a variety of age students. But I think it really takes a different way of thinking about an educational model that students aren't all doing the exact same thing at the same time, but in fact are following their own interests and passions and actually being more malleable. And I think it speaks also to this idea of ownership over learning, about engagement with learning, and about student agency. Yeah, and I, I think also in improving oneself. You know, I see, you know, with the students that I teach that, you know, and, and sports can be a, a huge variable, you know, because you've you've got on one side, you know, the 10,000 hour rule and, and, and natural ability for sports or it's it can be really difficult sometimes. And some of those students can be downbeat but not, and it's maybe changing the conversation. OK, you might be on a three or a four, but let's celebrate that success of pushing to a five, mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 and really bigging that up that, OK, it doesn't mean you're an absolute failure because, you know, at that seven or eight level. But it's okay. Well, here's where we're at, and if we can really push you towards just that element of self-improvement and ownership of that, yeah, that can then hopefully foster more success. Well, and absolutely, I think if we were in a going in an ideal world, we'd also be looking more at mastery, right? We'd say you wouldn't even be able to go to the next level unless you reach whatever we thought proficiency was, like a four. You know, you're not even going to do the next class, and it's not because we want to hold you back. It's actually because we want you to know the learning objectives that we've set out in the team that we've decided are the, mm. the proficient level that you need to be successful at the next level. Um, but there is this understanding, again, of pathways and developmental benchmarks and time. And even the IB's uh, clouded in its perspective of saying, why can't, if a child's 14, why can't they write the mat, the, you know, the diploma or, or yeah. courses within the diploma. Mm. We know that there are students out there that are more than capable. And in other cases, we're stuck letting them tread water with other types of programming. Yeah. So, so you know, th there's definite um, 
room for the conversation to, to challenge some of those pathway ideas. Yeah, and I think also room for, for you know, personal growth, those, those soft skills. Absolutely. As well, and, and developing as I know it's something that we all within the school, you know, work hard towards. And I think, you know, and it, I'm just remembering now the World Economic Forum, I think two or three years ago, had a big summit. And, and the head of that summit, when he made his speech, he said, look, in 10, 12 years time, with the development of artificial intelligence, this industrialized element of education of students being able to just retain banks of knowledge will be completely obsolete. Absolutely. And what will remain and what will actually last in terms of our species or humankind are going to be those soft skills, yeah. those teamwork yeah. elements. How can we work within other teams and with other people and and that's going to actually see us through yeah yeah i mean i was i was a different book but um 21 lessons for the 21st century not sure if you've read this book i haven't no but um i always mispronounce his name but yuval harari he's a uh, israeli um futurist and historian philosopher and he has a really he's written a book um homo sapiens which is about the history of humans to now he has another book called Homo Deus, which is about the kind of distant future. But 21 Lessons for the 21st Century is really looking at the near future. And it's interesting because we always hear this narrative about, you know, like, oh, the jobs that exist now won't exist in 20 mm -hmm. years. But he really portrays it in a way that makes a lot of sense about how information and data and AI and 5G and all these things are going to very quickly transform. He gives really concrete examples about this that make you go, oh, my God, or about how well... AI is starting to understand things like our preferences in Spotify or Netflix. And he's talking about in the future having retinal scans of knowing when you're looking at the TV, uh, you know, what parts of the movie actually interest you and when are you looking at your phone kind of thing during the movie mm -hmm. and being able to make recommendations, being able to take yours and your wife's uh, viewing preferences and be able to create customized uh, recommendations based hope, on both of your I hope that doesn't happen. When you talk about the need for what can humans do in the future, I mean, it is a big question. He's saying that even now there is um, research out there that says that uh, that they can create uh, music based on, we talk about creativity, you know, being the thing that will last. But they're saying actually based on what is a popular song today, there's already algorithms that can be used to build the, hmm. the next big pop song. Um, so it's really, you know, it, it, it's really crazy to think about. And I think you're right when we talk about students that are really advanced, what is it that, that they need to learn? Often it's not about the complexity of the content. It is about those soft skills or the things that are most complicated. And I think if you ask most of the parents in our community that are doing very well in their own businesses, they would say the same. They're not, they're not doing their, uh, you know, geography, uh, I mean, it's good to have knowledge. You have to have knowledge to yeah. draw on. Yeah. But uh, but what, what do they use on a daily basis? It's EQ. It's it's uh, human interactions. It's time management. It's about prioritizing. It's these types of things that are really important. Yeah, definitely. And 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 that skill and that element of knowledge will, of course, always last. But it, how how can we can develop those to have, I suppose, more of a personal impact on the person who mm. they are, yeah. and finding so much virtue and satisfaction in progressing with passions yeah individualized intrinsic motivation towards learning absolutely um i mean in, ter in terms of the book itself well there's one more principle Do we oh have the yes last principle? actually yes just just quickly yeah yeah the, yeah, the, the, la the last principle is the context principle which actually is, is is an interesting one because what 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 todd rose is talking about here is that um again we assume that people are are stagnant and they're the same in a lot of cases 
but actually in various contexts, people will, will change. And so a good example is being uh, an introvert or an extrovert. Some will say, well, I'm an extrovert or an introvert rather, you know, but, but, it, but it's contextual because they're not necessarily an introvert when they're at home with their loved ones and the people they're most close with. They actually have a different relationship with those people and as such have different types of behaviors. And we also know that people survive or flourish in, in different contexts. Uh, I think there's a Malcolm Gladwell book where he talks about being the, 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 the big fish in the small pond or the small fish in the big pond. You're the same size fish, but mm -hmm. when you change, it also changes your self-perception. Um, and uh, I think he gives an example in a book about uh, a woman who goes, she wants to be a doctor and she goes to Brown and she gets eaten alive. All of her, all of her fellow uh, people studying med, med school are all brilliant and they're all surpassing her and she gives up on her dream as a result. Uh, and I think that idea of context is really important. I think it's really important also when we're talking about preparing students for the next step for university. There's an assumption that the best thing to do is go to the most well-branded university rather than looking for the university that actually best fits the individual student. Mm. I always make the argument, you know, if you really like the school you're at now, look for a school that has the similar principles and values. Don't look for the, 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 the nameplate on the, the next label. school, Don't but look, look about label. what the teaching faculty is like at that school because it's about your long-term success, not about the end goal isn't university. You know, the end goal is having a successful life. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and thank you for that. I mean, it definitely, in terms of the book itself, what would be your takeaways from the book? And in terms of how that translates into your work, in yeah. your role, um, I think there's 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 a lo lot of pieces. I, I often reflect on on the principles and on 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 how they affect students uh, in the school. Um, I think about the ways that we can make sure we tap into those jagged elements and really cue into the individual student. How do we know where a student is in all those things? How do we not just group kids around? what we think we know or they're good at X, you know, how do we, how are we using assessment to make sure that we're finding out the individual next steps for those students um, and really support them. I also think about it from a context of, you know, what's the best way to report back and share that data, both to students and to parents about, about where their progress is. Um, in an ideal world, I'd like to see a report card that has a continuum that's evaluating. It's like a running continuum, you know, it's just kind of like, imagine, uh, a, a chart or a graph and it's just slowly building as you move through the curriculum and you're just seeing a progress bar as you develop more and more understanding rather than ranking what you know versus a standard or a grade just say okay now you know this much now you know this much and the line just keeps growing every year mm -hmm. as you learn more and more and it's not a judgment based on where you should be I mean in the background you might have one to help support that conversation with parents or to make sure kids aren't falling too far behind but kids are moving then at a pace that's actually appropriate. And if they want to go, if they're in third grade or fifth grade or, and they're three years ahead on, on certain knowledge pieces, great. And we're supporting it in that way. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, I suppose, yeah, it, it's really focusing on that holistic element of education. We've spoken about the kind of the soft skills and, and the knock-on effects of, of that for the future. But I think also, yeah, I, I guess a lot of the takeaways are really focused on how can we support the child as an individual? Absolutely. And, and, and this book really highlights what was interesting about the book is that there really is no average. No. There, there, there is no. no average. And there is, and, and what Todd Rose does, I think also in the book, is highlight the neuroscience behind it. Absolutely. And, yeah. he, and he gives that example of um, a 
couple of decades ago in neuroscience, they had like the average kind of scan of a human brain and they took it kind of from maybe 1500 different brain scans. And then when they looked at each individual brain scan, not one scan, similar to the cockpit example mm. in, in the Air Force, that not one brain scan in terms of how that looked towards the average was anywhere near close yeah. to what, and, th and that's transformed the way now that neuroscience is going mm. and individualizing that. And I think that's obviously a huge message and a huge takeaway for, for educators to think about, okay, well, how can I really get to know my students in the way that I can push them towards yeah. their passions, their talents and what they're good at and obviously, of course support them in, yeah. in other areas? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why, like I said, when you said, what are the things, I, I constantly go back to the principle of that context. I mean, when there's a new kid comes to the school, how am I, how am I understanding how they might be experiencing this new context? Um, you know, different um, cultural backgrounds, what's the context that they're coming from? And also really think about that pathway thing about what, what do people want to achieve or where will they achieve? And also slow down sometimes when we're worried about or where we think someone's really uh, accelerated, you know, where are they in their own development rather than trying to measure it just against the average. Yeah, and with that open-mindedness, I think that's another takeaway, that open-mindedness element that a lot of it comes from experience as educators and getting a, and I was actually talking this in a different meeting this week actually about, um, you know, active engagement and listening with our with our tutees and our students and supporting mm. them and, and and that you can have kind of tools in your back pocket but really it's about experience and feeling the moment and and having that intuition in a way mm. that, that comes from just being open-minded to the fact that I think that can help in a way being open-minded that there is not one bank of set responses in different situations mm -hmm. or even educational conversations that we can be open-minded towards any scenario yeah. that could really ignite that intrinsic motivation and that engagement yeah, I, th I think that's uh, that's right. You have, there is a level of um, flexibility that us is in an average world we can be really standardized in everything that we do. You know, here's the three responses you should do when you're meeting with your two T or your, your you know or your, your the child you're mentoring. But the re reality is, is that it's much more nuanced than that, right? We'd like to have a book that had the three rules for everything, but it doesn't exist because humans are much more complex than that. And I think that that's exactly true for schools and. Yeah, having standards and expectations is important, but also recognizing the fluidity in the way that, that that humans exist. Yeah, yeah, amazing. No, and and of course, highly recommend if you haven't read the book, listeners out there, to uh, take a look at the End of Average by Todd Rose. I think we have some copies coming into the ICS library. I think there there might be some already there. Awesome, definitely. Okay, so pick up your copy. Um, and in terms of getting towards wrapping up this episode, um. Do you feel any element of what you take from this for us as individuals as well? Because the podcast and different elements that we cover definitely talks about education and, and how we are as educators, but also individuals and what we take from it. And certainly for me, looking up Todd Rose and the work that he's done, a lot of it is about growth and, and also beyond when I finished my education and how actually I'm probably a better student and learner now and much more engaged in my passions, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And it, I just think back, like, yeah, how my education growing up was so one-dimensional in a way. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that, that is the great thing about the book. and That's why the examples I shared actually aren't necessarily related to education because I think, yes, it has huge implications on education. 
Um, I mean, he's working in in education now as as a researcher. But it also just it, it's the way that we are as adults, as, as as learners, really, rather than take out the institutional part of it, but really just think about people as as learners, as beings that are growing. And I think there's so much, so much richness there. So even if you if you want to read it as an educator, go for it. If you just want to read it because it's it's fascinating, look at at humans. It's well worth that too. Yeah, that's awesome. No, that's great. And 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 it was funny. Even just a matter of days ago, something came across my path online actually that that was information about interesting facts about personal growth and examples of this of just and and for me, you know coming out of school and not just falling into just a certain pathway of expectation, I think mm. that for me is something that's really important you know it, how are we falling into that element of expectation and I've just got a few down here that that came across my way that you know at twenty three oprah was was fired from her first reporting job. That's and great. at age 30, Harrison Ford was a carpenter. Yeah. Um, Samuel L. Jackson didn't get his first major movie role until he was 46. And uh, Alan Rickman gave up his graphic design career to pursue acting at 42. Yeah. Um, J.K. Rowling, uh, there's quite a statement that was in this article, but yeah, she was a suicidal single parent living on welfare at 28. Okay. <laughs> and, and By 29, um, though, turned it around. Like, Bosh. <laughs> Nailed it. It's got a theme park a number oh, of years incredible. later. And, uh, but I think yeah. there's a lot of people in education you meet too, right, that had yeah. a different career before arriving. And I think yeah. that's the one thing too is that historically, um, you know, in the, maybe the 1950s, there was this like mythos of like these are the steps you do, right? And I think as, as society has grown, that pathway has eroded, right? And that we recognize that people might have multiple careers and might have a family late or have a family early or – you know that we're more diverse than that, and and there's more going on. So I think that's that's yeah. an exciting thing about yeah. And and I think yeah. And I suppose for us as educators, also how can we have that as part of the the culture through through the years up to graduation? Because I, I still, I mean, of course, I'm not saying this is a concrete statement, but there's still that element of well, this is all geared towards your choice at university, yeah. towards yeah. what you want to do being asked that question at 16 maybe even 15 yeah. and and just saying well there's nothing wrong with that that's great if you're passionate and you're engaged and you know what you want to do and you're talented in that fantastic yeah um but definitely go down certain pathways but be aware that that's not it well we i think that's it it's outside some of that. sometimes you 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 see people say things like the education system is broken i don't think it's broken i think it works for what it's designed to do. And, mm -hmm. and some people enjoy the, what it's designed to do. And that's great. That's not to say that it's like a bad thing, but there are other people that maybe need the different pathways. They need context. They, they have a jagged profile. They need these other elements of themselves to be recognized. And so it's just about having more options for, for learners and more options for pathways and, and things that they can do towards graduation, Rec recognizing that it isn't, there isn't only one way um, to live your life yeah. super what a great point to end on and yeah thank you very much to everyone tuning in and just confirm yeah that book the end of average by todd rose pick up your copy in the library um thank you so much nat that thank was a you. pleasure lovely and, um yeah maybe we might have you back on the podcast soon Ooh, that would great. be nice <laughs> all right thanks thanks everyone ciao